0: This is Amy, and welcome back to For the Wreck of the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. In this episode, how and why was nostalgia for the 50s reflected in the pop culture of the 70s? As I record this, it is two weeks before the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Yes, your parents or grandparents were romping in the mud of Max Yasker's farm 50 years ago. On Friday, August 15th, the first of what would be a crowd of, oh, roughly half a million people began to descend on Max Yasker's dairy farm in upstate New York for a music festival that had many, many logistical problems and many, many iconic musical performances. For some historians, this also marked the end of the era known as the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. What does Woodstock and the psychedelic rock and free love have to do with the 50s? You might know who performed last on Monday morning of Woodstock. That was Jimi Hendrix, and he closed out Woodstock with this searing and controversial rendition of the Star Spangled Banner on electric guitar. This was no ordinary playing of the National Anthem. Jimi Hendrix made the anthem almost sound like it was wailing. And for Hendrix, who was very outspoken about his opposition to American involvement in Vietnam, this song was a reflection of that. He was also threatened with physical violence if he played that version of the national anthem um, at his show in Dallas. It was very fitting that this was how Woodstock ended because for many historians, as I've said, Woodstock signaled the end of the 60s, and what a wild and turbulent ride that was. The turbulence is not going to end in the 1970s, but the 70s is going to inherit this weariness for the nation. To borrow a line from the Beatles, we were so tired of the fussing and fighting, and because of that, we are going to play some make-believe in the 1970s not about the 70s or the 60s we are going to play some make believe about the 50s that leads us to the band that went on right before Jimi Hendrix at about 7.30 in the morning Sha Na children of the 70s know Sha Na maybe you watched their TV show that was on just for a little while in 1977 If you have ever seen the movie Grease, you have seen Shawna Na. -na. They played uh, Johnny Casino in The Gamblers, who played Born to Hand Jive at the dance contest. That you are. Uh, maybe if you're not, if you're driving, you shouldn't hand jive. So Sha Na Na was a group of college students from Columbia University in New York. In fact, one of the founders of Sha Na Na, Dennis Green, became a law professor after he left the band, and he was some big wig in the music industry, too. They covered 50s songs dressed in stereotypical 50s doo-wop style, lots of brill cream, that hair grease that came in the tube, and shiny suits they were originally known as the kingsmen but there was already a band with that name with a pretty big hit called louie louie so the band borrowed from get a job by the silhouettes Okay, so obviously they borrowed the Sha Na Na part uh, uh, of Get a Job from uh, the Silhouettes' 1957 hit. Now, Sha Na Na was a big hit on their college campus, and they started to play a few gigs on clubs near the campus. Members of the band believed that they were so popular with college students in the late 60s because they were kind of this break from all the turmoil of the late 60s, Vietnam, the violence in Chicago at the Democratic uh, Convention in 1968, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Bobby Kennedy. We are not even out of the 60s yet, and people are mentally exhausted. So Sha Na Na tapped into what was perceived to be a simpler time, the 50s. The reason that Sha played at Woodstock is because Jimi Hendrix saw them play at a club in New York called The Scene. He liked what he heard, and he took Michael Lang, one of the organizers of Woodstock, to hear them. That must have been a very uh, mind-blowing experience for a group of young guys like that to have Hendrix and Janis Joplin, members of the band from Led Zeppelin, uh, people like that hear them play. So Shawn Anna played Woodstock. They got a $350 check for it and the check bounced. They got a dollar for their appearance in the Woodstock movie and that's really what launched their national careers. Now Shawn Anna was not responsible for the 50s revival in the 1970s. They were part of it, part of this collective feeling among people who grew up in that era or missed that era, or simply wanted something different. George Lucas is part of this revival. He is probably best known for creating Star Wars, which is so different from American Graffiti, that you are excused if you forgot or never knew that he made American Graffiti. American Graffiti was released on August 1st, 1973, although Lucas had been trying to get the film made before that. So, around the era of Woodstock. Lucas made a movie, which takes place in the course of one California night on the last day or last night of summer vacation in 1962. A Disclaimer, 1962 was still the era known as the 50s. George Lucas made the movie as a love letter to his youth, which was the late 50s and early 60s. Note the music on the soundtrack, which is a whole lot of 50s rock and roll. When discussing the history of a decade, the culture does not magically change with the flip of the calendar. The late 60s and early 70s have a very similar feel. So did the late 50s and early 60s. The 60s as we know them began on February 7th, 1964, the day that the Pan Am Flight 101 from London to New York brought the Beatles to America. All right. Lucas uses words like innocence when describing his movie. He describes this so-called mating ritual involving cars and rock and roll that was part of the 50s, but gets lost in the free love of the 60s. In fact, music is such a huge part of American graffiti that Lucas was told that there was too much of it. Indeed, there are 41 songs on the soundtrack which, by the way, made it to number 10 on the album chart and sold over 3 million copies. What was really unusual about the American Graffiti soundtrack was that it was full of popular songs and did not have an original score. It was very fitting that Lucas did this because we often consider music of our teen years to be the soundtrack of our youth. (laughs) ¶¶ As I walk along, I wonder, uh, what went wrong with our love, a love that was so strong. And as I still walk on, I think of the things we've done together, uh, while our hearts were young. from del shannon he released that in 1961 it was a huge hit number one on the billboard hot 100 for a month and it made it onto rolling stone's list of top 500 singles of all time but it also uh, was exposed to new listeners by being part of this american graffiti soundtrack so what is this world that lucas is giving us were the 50s a time of innocence We know that the 50s were a time of racial segregation and violence against non-white people. We know that women were told that their place was in the kitchen and that they were legally barred from jobs and schools, and many could not even get a bank account without their husband's signature. We know that it was illegal to simply be gay or lesbian or transsexual. We know that ordinary people were accused of being communist with no evidence, We know that teenagers still had premarital sex, but that birth control was very difficult to get, and safe abortion was not legal, so women got very risky abortions that threatened their lives. In fact, there was never a year in this nation's history that had a higher rate of teen pregnancy than 1957. I do not fault Lucas for making this movie, which happens to be one of my all-time favorites. American Graffiti is not a documentary any more than Happy Days or Laverne and Shirley were reality TV shows about life in the 1950s. The problem comes when we lose sight of the fact that if you were black or gay or Native American or Latino in the 1950s, chances are good that your perspective of the 50s, the era, is much different than that of George Lucas, who grew up in Marin County, California. The bigger problem comes in when we take American Graffiti or Laverne and Shirley or Greece, and say, well, that is what the 50s were like. And boy, were they the good old days. Your childhood might have been the good old days for you. You might have really warm feelings when you reflect on your childhood, and that is wonderful. Stevie Wonder wrote a song like that. That is what I wish is about. He told Oprah Winfrey in 2004 that things were going really well for him when he wrote the song in 1976. And when he sat down at the piano, he was going to write something really deep, but that wasn't what it was. What he was feeling. So instead we got this. To hang out with those hoodlum, hoodlum friends of mine greeted at the back door, but thought I told you not to go outside. Trying your best to bring the water to your eyes thinking it might stop her from whooping your behind. I wish those days could come back once more. Why did those days ever have to go? I wish those days could come back once more. The Grammy Award winning I Wish from Stevie Wonder, part of what is arguably his best album, Songs in the Key of Life. A song about remembering childhood, but not a song about celebrating that era in which Stevie Wonder grew up, which happened to be the 1950s and early 1960s. It is important to make that distinction the weariness that the 60s passed on to the 70s worked its way into what has to be the most scrutinized and analyzed song of the 70s, and that is Don McLean's American Pie. So most people figured out that the day the music died was uh, the day that Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens died in the plane crash in Iowa. Most people suspected that the jester was Bob Dylan and the king was Elvis. They were right about that. Uh, Bob Dylan didn't like that very much, by the way, uh, that the jester stole his thorny crown. He didn't like being referred to as the jester. Don McLean auctioned the original lyrics with his handwritten notes about the song in 2015. And at the time, he said, basically, in American Pie, things are heading in the wrong direction. It is becoming less ideal, less idyllic. By the way... The lyrics sold for $1.2 million. Speaking of the King, if the Beatles were the icons of the 1960s, Elvis was the icon of the 50s. Period. The end. I cannot believe it has taken me nearly a year of this podcast to get around to talking about Elvis. The 60s swallowed Elvis after he got out of the army. He made a series of these formulaic movies, which I will admit to Loving as a guilty pleasure, especially Viva Las Vegas. But this this was very saccharine kind of stuff. While Elvis was playing race car drivers named Lucky and Hawaiian tourist guides named Chad, the Beatles were revolutionizing rock. In December 1968, NBC aired an Elvis TV special which is considered to be his comeback, and proved that he still had that swagger, and to many he was still the king of rock and roll. And indeed it was a comeback. There is this image of the 70s Elvis as the fat guy in the white jumpsuit. and That's probably true for the last couple of years of his very troubled life. That is not true for the early 70s Elvis. The early 70s, Elvis was not that fat guy, and he was still a viable musician who was looking to reconnect with his audience. Conditions were ripe for an Elvis comeback in the late 60s and early 70s. And he delivered. After a lot of music industry red tape, and as the summer of 1969 was turning to the fall of 1969, Elvis released the last number one song of his career. We're caught in a trap I can't walk out Because I love you too much, baby Why can't you see what you do that go a little longer than I normally would have. Uh, N- Suspicious Minds, not only a number one hit, uh, but it also gives us a preview of where pop is headed in the early 70s with this kind of country-ish, pop-ish, heavy production. You know, that's that's the Nashville sound at work there. Suspicious Minds is, is not it. It's not as if Elvis is like, okay, here's Suspicious Minds and thank you for uh, the number one hit in the accolades now let me go tour he continued to make music in the 1970s although he is near the end of the time in his career where he makes rock and roll in 1972 Elvis's marriage to Priscilla was breaking up and he was not much in the mood to make rock and roll he really had to be convinced to record Burning Love but he did it And uh, he gave a very inspired performance in his recording of Burning Love. And it was his last top ten hit. something i said there uh i said that that was his last top 10 hit and that suspicious minds was his last number one that's on the pop charts uh moody blue which came out the year that elvis died in 1977 was actually a number one country hit so i just wanted to make sure that i was i was clear on that did elvis benefit from the 50s revival there is no doubt about that now the music that he made that hit the pop charts and then later the country chart, because I would argue that Moody Blue was actually a good single. The, the whole album, I'm not so sure, but the single was good. Uh, but where we really saw Elvis being able to tap into this nostalgia for the 50s was in his touring and his sold-out live shows, especially near the end of his life when the reviews were not always very good. It did not make much difference to people like my mom, who was just shy of 30 when she left me and my little brother home in the care of our father, which she never did, uh, while she headed off to Omaha to see Elvis in concert in 1975. Now, when Elvis died in 1977, it was not just a mourning for Elvis. It was a morning for... An era. I was raised on Elvis, we started when I was 10 years old, my mother and daddy loved him. And uh, I, I just say I was raised on him, there's just there's nobody else like him, there won't ever be anybody else like him as far as I'm concerned. Why, did, why go to all this trouble? Because we love Elvis. We still do. You're not going to get in, you Doesn't make any difference. I'm friends with quite a few of the people in the group and I want them to know I'm here, maybe they'll see me on the street. We love them very much. I just can't believe he's dead. It's terrible. But I just thank God that, that Elvis died here in Graceland instead of on the road, just like any other rock and roll singer. Whether you're black or white, whether you're country, redneck or a freak, young or old, from Moscow, London or Memphis, Elvis Presley will still be the king of rock and roll to me. There were a lot of people who felt that way. I mean, we're talking about a lot, uh, millions the people felt that way. Even if you could make a really strong case that Elvis was no longer the king of rock and roll in 1977, but again, he's representing something that is not just himself and him and his music. He's representing this whole era known as the fifties. So if fifties nostalgia was in part fueled by baby boomers who were feeling a longing for their childhoods, what about the gen Xers who were not even there for them? It was fun, and it was different. That's it. The pop culture of the 70s and into the early 80s is littered with 50s references. The TV shows Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, which aired back-to-back on Tuesday nights on ABC, were extremely popular with children and teenagers, including yours truly. Nielsen ratings showed that 34% of the audience for Happy Days was children, 27 was teenagers. For Laverne and Shirley, the numbers were very similar. That social and political rebellion of the 60s and 70s did not resonate with Gen Xers. They were too young. In a 1972 edition of Life magazine, which had a cover story on this 50s revival, so remember, this is 1972, so we are just getting into things in terms of the 50s revival here. College students who were interviewed for the feature said that they liked the 50s because it was different and the leather jacket greasers as they were called were the so-called freaks of their era like anything the 50s was a fad and and fads are fun that fad was fueled by presenting the 50s through these rose-colored glasses and it sold clothing like penny loafers and bobby socks it sold hula hoops it even created oldies radio in 1971 a uh, cool radio in Phoenix started an oldies program featuring 50s songs. The DJ who started it actually had to bring in his own music, and the show was so popular that a, they had to hire someone to take all of the phone call requests that he got for music, and b, it led to the station becoming all oldies. By the way, Cool's uh, current oldies catalog features a lot of late 70s music and they actually have an hd station that is only 70s music i teach high school and you can bet that the teenagers today know the movie Grease. they maybe know that it was a musical on stage first why do they know this because the movie is fun there really had been nothing like it when Grease premiered in 1972, and we're talking about the Broadway musical now. It ran for eight years, and it surpassed Fiddler on the Roof as the longest-running show on Broadway at the time. It is now Phantom of the Opera, by the way, which opened in 1988. When Grease first opened, it attracted a lot of the non-Broadway types, more blue-collar workers who wanted to relive their childhoods. Jim Jacobs conceived of the show based on, you guessed it, his childhood. But the original version, which was performed in Chicago, and actually Grease is kind of based on Chicago, was much more raunchy and aggressive than the version that we now know. The characters were made much more likable for Broadway. I'm going to borrow a line from Todd Everett's article about Grease in a 1991 uh, article in the Los Angeles Times. He said about Greece, It, like Happy Days, is nostalgia for the 50s as they never quite were. Jim Jacobs and Wayne Casey wrote the musical and started with the music of the 50s that they liked. And then they created this kind of, I don't want to say fictional world around it because they're writing what they perceived to be the 50s. But again, Greece is not a documentary, so we don't want to take what we see in Greece and say, hey, that's what the 50s were. In 1972, Jacobs said he thought that the musical worked because a lot of people could identify with it as the first era in which kids had music that was all their own. I'm not so sure about that. I think you could make a a little bit of a case for jazz in the 1920s. Being kind of like that, but I do get his point. And again, he is—he's again starting with the music. The movie adaptation adaptation of Grease was a blockbuster. It was released on June sixteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, and it is still the epitome of a summer movie. You got your high school shenanigans, you got the music, and you've got star power for sure. This was the second of this kind of uh, trilogy. Of John Travolta musicals. We had Saturday Night Fever in 1977, and then we had Grease in 1978, and then we had Urban Cowboy in 1980, which started a whole other type of fad. And John Travolta was as big of a movie star as you would want at that time. For adults, especially white adults, Grease was uh, more of this romanticized view of the 50s. And again, for kids, it was just entertainment. I can vouch for that because I was 11 the summer that Grease came out. And after I saw that movie for the first time, I had to have that soundtrack. That title track that opens the movie just went bam and let you know what you were in for. valley sings that song he was experiencing his own kind of comeback um, in the 1970s barry gibb wrote that song Uh, he must have written 9,000 songs in the 1970s grease the title track went to number one on the billboard uh, hot 100 it was not the only song from that two lp soundtrack soundtrack to go to number one so did this That is John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. They played Danny and Sandy in Greece with their number one smash, You're the One That I Want. There's something really ironic about this song, You're the One That I Want, uh, is a any 50s nostalgia movie, but it is now part of 70s nostalgia. Just some, iron- some irony there. Um, find a Gen Xer and love or hate that song. The girls love it. Yeah, but everybody knows it. If you were alive in the nineteen seventies and you had, you were able to actually take in music. Everybody knows that song. Of course, you know Sha Na Na is all over this soundtrack too. They have six cuts and almost all of the entire side three of one of the two albums of the soundtrack. Whenever we reflect on the past, we as individuals and we as This collective society are faced with balancing nostalgia with reality. There is no harm in a band like Sha Na Na making a living by covering a catalog of songs from the 50s and early 60s. There is no harm in George Lucas or Gary Marshall or Jim Jacobs making TV shows or movies or plays set in a specific era uh, because it's fun to do so. There is harm, though, if we are led to believe or if we are not astute enough to understand that these are fictional worlds. We do not honor the past or the people who lived in it by honoring an era that never was. That is it for this episode of For the Record, of the 70s. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, if you like the show, will you please do me the favor of giving it a nice rating so that other fans of 70s music and 70s history can find the show? Hey, tell somebody about it, too. Thanks so much. Bye for now.